Good morning. Will you open your Bibles, please, to Nehemiah chapter 11? Nehemiah chapter 11. Would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. And Father, may the ears and hearts of those who sit here this morning be open, be tender, to receive instruction from your word, to be encouraged in this work that we do in being your people, that each one of us supply, each part of us has a, has a portion in, in making the whole what it should be. Help us, Father, to embrace who we are, to embrace what we've been called to do and to be. Thank you, Father, for this privilege of being made holy in the blood of Jesus. May we conduct ourselves as holy people. May we give you the honor and glory in all that we do. Please guide us. Please build us. Please strengthen us, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a couple of things that uh, stand out in going into this text in Nehemiah chapter 11 this morning. One of them is uh, thinking about what a traumatic experience it is to make the change of, of moving somewhere. How costly it is to make a transition where you have to leave your home, your families, your neighbors, your schools, your work, your friends, and familiar location, all those security blankets that we have, and to move someplace else and be replanted and to do that. And, and we live in a society where that's becoming more and more common to be called upon to do that. And as Christians, when we move somewhere, uh, that can be quite an experience in itself to try to uh, plug in and to be a part of a congregation and what you're supposed to do and, and, and what's expected of you. There's also uh, the element of realizing the, uh, the, the somebodies that we have in a church really wouldn't be somebodies if it weren't for the nobodies. In other words, we have a lot of people who are more visible, more readily known by congregations, and, and yet behind the scenes there are a lot of people who are not known, who are not recognized for what they do, people that you might not even be able to name, and uh, to realize that if it weren't for them, where would we be? In fact, in, in our individual lives, there's somebody who has helped to make us what we are, parents and family and friends and, and other people who have helped our lives. They've influenced us, and uh, I think it's good to take time to, to thank them occasionally. And I think it's, time, uh, it's good to take time occasionally to uh, recognize them publicly as far as the church goes and to uh, appreciate them. When I look at Nehemiah, I realize that there wouldn't be a wall built if it weren't for the wallflowers. Typically, we think of wallflowers as being people who are off by themselves and they, they don't want, you know, they just don't want to be uh, part of anything. But I think of wallflowers also as being those who, uh, they just don't want all the recognition. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to be anybody special. They just want to do what they're supposed to do. They're not after the attention and the accolades and on all of that. And, and I mention that because I, I want to encourage us to bloom where God has put us. I want to encourage us to encourage others to be able to do that. In Nehemiah chapter 7, 
The wall is built, and, and Nehemiah uses some very shrewd management skills. He makes sure that he posts guards at the gate and how they're supposed to function. And he also posts guards within the city at, at certain strategic places so that they can watch over things and take care of it. But verse 4 says something very interesting. It says that there really weren't a lot of people within the city. There just weren't a lot of people there. And there are, if there are no people in the city, why would you bother building a wall? Why would you just build a wall around all this rubble that's there? You do it because it's God's city. In Nehemiah 11, it's going to be called the holy city. And a righteous thinking Jew is going to want Zion to be exalted. Uh, that's the place where God's presence is believed to be. That's where he was pleased to abide. And if for no other reason than the fact that it's God's city, it would be right and it would be good so that all can see it to inhabit it and conduct yourselves as people who belong there. Well, why aren't there many people in the city? The city hadn't had a wall for some 160 years. Jerusalem's people had been easy prey for all of their enemies. It wasn't even an attractive or a safe place to try to reside. Why bother being there? The people had forsaken the city and they moved out to the suburbs. When you read the book of Haggai, he reminds us that the people wanted to live in comfort and then if attack came, they had an easier way to just head off and go to the hills. Nehemiah is approaching this in such a way to say, here's Here's a pile of rubble. The wall's built around the city. The city needs to be occupied. But urban renewal is tough work. Who wants to do that? You know, the easy thing to do is go in where somebody has already built and things are already in existence and make your home there. Not go in and have to build from the ground up on all of that. Jerusalem's old rubble, broken down houses from when the Babylonians had invaded. Who wants to clean that mess up? You know, I watch people sometimes with churches have the same type of attitude. You know, who wants to go in and build that up? I want to go in where there's already a big, thriving church and plug myself in there. Well, because of this, nobody's living in Jerusalem, even though they've got this nice big wall around that. And if you were on the Jerusalem Chamber of Commerce, you've got a problem. How are you going to populate God's city when nobody wants to live there? And I believe in this chapter there are some very relevant biblical principles that still apply when we look at occupying God's city, the church. I want you to notice, first of all, what they're doing in getting people back into God's cities. They, they did a couple of things. Uh, the first one is they cast lots, verse 1 says. And that's an unusual concept uh, uh, for us. That's something we really don't understand, really don't relate to a whole lot. But it's the idea of submitting to God's will. Throughout the Old Testament, there are a lot of passages that talk about the casting of lots. Proverbs 16 verse 33 says, The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. They did that because they believed in, in the casting of lots and the lot would fall to a certain individual because God wanted it that way. That in so doing... Uh, they were doing God's will. And it's interesting to notice how totally subservient they would become to doing God's will. What, whatever they preferred, that's secondary. God's will comes first. 
It's not a matter of convenience. It's a matter of pleasing God. They, they believed that God had called them when the lot was cast and it fell to them. And so they're going to respond that way. The second thing they did was they had volunteers. Uh, there's another group who's willing to move back into the city because God had called them to do that. All of these people are going to be involved with moving back into the city. Blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. And they weren't saying, well, you know, good luck with that. I'm glad that you and not me, I wouldn't want to do that. That's not what's involved at all in this volunteering process. The Hebrew word that's used here means to impel, to incite from within. People who are deeply stirred from within believing this is what I am convicted of that God wants me to do. This is how I believe he wants me to respond. And they considered it a huge privilege to be called by God to fulfill his will. They also considered it an incredible responsibility to make sure that they did that. Some of the numbers estimate that about 5,000 people were prepared to submit themselves and their whole future to God's will. That's a big number of people. And here they are with their exemplary surrender. Here they are doing this uh, with no complaining, being sacrificial, responding to God's will. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14 tells us to do all things without grumbling. That's a challenge within itself, isn't it? Do all things as God's people without grumbling. I, I believe if we look at that and see what they're doing, it would help us to say, You know, there's a key to help us understand what we're doing with our 2020 vision. To fall into a place with that, to have a part in doing that, to to carry out what we believe is God's will here. And so they, uh, they said, God has impelled me. God has convicted me from within. God has called me. I'm going to be a part of this. Building the wall didn't matter all that much if it's not for the wall flowers the people behind the scenes, the people who are doing things. And the word volunteered uh, is also very interesting when you look throughout the, the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 35, for example, says they willingly gave their goods to build the tabernacle. They volunteered. In Judges 5 and verse 2, it says of Deborah and Barak, they overthrew the Canaanites. And when the people volunteered themselves, praise the Lord. You find it in 1 Chronicles 29 where they willingly offered to build the temple. They volunteered. And every time that I could see that the word is used, nobody is ever named per se. It's just the people. They're all involved with that. It's a behind-the-scenes type of thing. And I think one of the reasons for that is the primacy of holiness in their thinking. They believed that God was a holy God. They believed that they were supposed to be holy They believed that it was a holy city, and so they were conducting themselves in a holy manner. What an immense privilege. What a challenging responsibility. And they considered that each one of them, with their entire life, was having a part in what was doing. The text that was read earlier in Ephesians 4, through that which every joint supplies. And they believed every one of them had a part in doing that. They're not going to get their names in the bulletin, in the newspaper. They're not going to get a lot of press for all of it. But you can't read about and you can't see great things that are done for God without realizing there are a lot of folks behind the scenes who help make it possible and do that. 
We believe, we think that God wants us to move into the city, so we're going to help. And a holy city with unholy people is a contradiction in terms. Holy city calls for holy people living there. Second thing I want you to notice in the text this morning is the list of people. And we're not going to go through and read all of those names. There are a couple that that are kind of interesting. But the list of people speaks to the privilege of serving God. Notice those who willingly moved in verses 2 through 9. You know, and, and I think in some ways, if you can't see that, you haven't done any moving in the last few years to really appreciate what's involved there. They freely offered themselves to God's work. You know, and, and I'm, I'm amazed as I read about that and see that and, and think how many times we have to sometimes beg for volunteers to do things. They didn't even have to be asked. They just freely gave themselves to do that. And again, you know, when, when we talk about moving somewhere, that, that's, that's quite a transition. You pick up your roots. You change jobs. Take kids out of school. Leave friends. Go to a city that's governed by people you didn't vote for. Policed by people you didn't choose. You know, building a new house out of rubble. And the only reason I can think of why these folks would do that is because they believed they were doing the will of God. They accepted the responsibility from a deep compulsion. Called by God, they'll totally surrender themselves. They're not trying to please themselves. They want to please God first and foremost. When you look through the New Testament, Colossians 3.17, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31... Passages like that that tell us whatever we do, we're to do it for God's glory. We're to do it to please him. I want you to notice one in particular, 1 Peter 4 and verse 11. Peter says, whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever." And ever, amen. We serve for the purpose of making sure that whatever we're going to do, I want to glorify God in this. I want God to be glorified in the part that I can play in being one of his people. It's a matter of asking, you know, uh, where does God want me? How does God want to use me? Where does God need me? I had a phone call a few days ago from some folks in a different part of the country considering moving down here. And, and we talked for quite a while on the phone. And we talked about, well, what's the health of the church here like? And we went through and discussed a lot of things. And I thought, you know, not one time did I hear asked, can the church there use me? Is there a place for us to help serve in that church? And I think as God's people, we owe God and we owe his people that. Make sure we're going to be somewhere where we're not going to be a bad advertisement for the gospel. That we have something positive to to put in there. Notice also that in the beginning of verse 10, you've got those who served or those who carried on the work of the temple. Those who carried on the work of the temple. Uh, Again, when you read through some of these numbers, it gets rather interesting to consider. You've got something like, according to verse 12, 822 men. And I guess plus that, there are their families. And you go through again, you know, skip all the names in that. The majority of the names, though, we'll never know anyway. We'll never have a clue as to who they were. But God wanted people in the city. 
He wanted the temple to be provided for. And here are the people who are going to do that. They moved to Jerusalem to lead God's people in public worship. I think that's just fascinating to consider. Most of them will never be known by name, but their part is very important. In our fellowship across this country, we are blessed with thousands of public servants who serve and they minister in just relative, if not total, obscurity from being known by a lot of other people. Nobody is supposed to be in the church to show all that you've learned, who you are, what kind of schooling you've got in order to have a real Christian influence. Such an attitude results in uh, egotistical preachers. You end up with power-hungry elders, deacons who want to change everything to meet their desires, uh, members who become more divisive than unifying. But when the people just serve to glorify God and they don't care if their name is called, that's what makes the difference. Humility and obscurity. When we put that in the pulpit, when we put that in our eldership, when we have that among our deacons, when all of the members serve that way, we realize that makes a big difference. I believe that people who have determined to work within the temple to do the best they can are of the most value to God and to his work. Verse 16 mentions a third group. Those who had charge of the outside work of the house of God. Wherever they're needed, that's where they'll serve. Those who serve wherever they're needed. There are a couple of names here that are interesting. One of them is Shabbatai, and the other one's Josabad. And I thought, you know, that'd be good names if you had twin sons. You'd want to name them that, wouldn't you? Boy, that'd be tough to get a handle on and hold on to. I do see this, though. This may be the first buildings and grounds committee among God's people in the Bible. That may be what this is. They didn't preach any sermons. They didn't lead any songs. Uh, they didn't help on the missions committee. But they did make sure, watch this, they did make sure that after a week of worship, the temple was cleaned up, maintained places where the, the sheep were kept. They made sure the grain rooms were full. They made sure that when the priest robes got dirty, somebody cleaned them. And do you think they and their helpers were important? Nehemiah did. And that's why he lists them here. There's a reason this morning why you sit here comfortably warm. And why in the summertime you sit here comfortably cool. That the sound system works well. That the cards and pencils are in the pew in front of you. That there are songbooks there. That the floor is picked up. That there are decorations in the auditorium to make it look nicer that the restrooms are clean, that you had a place to park, that the outside looks presentable, that you can order a copy of the sermons if you want them and get them, that you can go online concerning this church and its ministries. There's a reason for that because there are a lot of people behind the scenes. When you got to the building this morning, it was already opened, warmed, and lighted just for your comfort. And I confess to you that I've not had the appreciation in the past for these kinds of things that I've needed to have. And I think you could probably say the same thing. We just assume that it's going to be ready for us. And the people who, without being named, who do this and make it possible, 
You know, the only time they usually get mentioned is when something goes wrong. Who's responsible for that? And that's not the way it should be. When was the last time you, you thanked our Shabbathites and Josabads for what they do? The things that I've mentioned, rather than complaining about that. Do you know I've learned to appreciate the fact that vacuums and preacher's notes are just as important as the other? One is just as important and vital as the other is in many ways. Let me say something about the people who make sure that we have people to serve at the table, to lead our prayers, to read our scriptures. You remove them, and we've got chaos. Not everyone can lead, but all service will be remembered by God. And sometimes the disrespect that these people get by not even notifying them that you're not going to be here, that's, that's not right. To, to realize that if we tried to do one Sunday without having those jobs taken care of and filled, watch and see what would happen, what it would be like around here. We've got a lot of folks who make good things possible. I just want to encourage you to be more respectful and more appreciative and um, just support them. Verse 17, there's a man by the name of Mataniah. He's a leader in thanksgiving and prayer. I think he's a leader on his knees. Maybe he couldn't preach, but he was important in the worship of God because he could pray. You know, the people who organize our public worship format are pretty obscure. Although you may see them running around with a paper in their hand and pen trying to find somebody to fill in at the last minute. But you know what? They don't ask for a lot of thanks. They just want to serve. Good public worship organization doesn't just happen. And I'm very grateful for the people we have who do that. It includes all the people who just speak positively about what goes on here. All the good things there are to offer. Henry Jowett once told of asking a lady who was physically limited for being in church how frustrated she was at not being able to be there and be publicly involved. And she said, no, I'm, I'm not frustrated with that. She said, every evening I take my newspaper and I open it up and I go to the new births. And I pray for each one by name. And I thank God for them and ask God to help them know the Lord when they're young and that their parents will teach them. And she said, next, I go to the, to the marriages. And, and I pray for the bride and the groom by name and for their marriage that they will know the Lord. And any children that they have, they will know the Lord also. And next, she said, I go to the obituaries and I look at the names of those who have passed away. And I pray for their families that the Lord will comfort them that he will bless them, and that they will recognize his presence. Jowett said he left a little bit ashamed, thinking, you know, why did I go and ask? Why do you feel so bad because you do so little? She actually did a lot, didn't she? The grace of humility lets us accept the less than prominent places and to be grateful for the less than prominent people. It helps us to be content not for notoriety, but just to be able to serve. There are, there are millions and millions of people down through all the ages who will not be remembered by name. We, can, we don't know who they were. But my Bible tells me that God remembers them. And there's a good possibility you're sitting by someone this morning, maybe next to one of what I would think would be some of my favorite people 
in, in all of the church. Because maybe all that they did was just pray and pray and pray that worship would be good this morning. And I think it's awfully hard to criticize worship if you haven't prayed about it. Don't you? There's one other thing, though, before we wind this all down. And I thought about this, and it's the emphasis on family in this text. You can go back and see the references to family here. Six, seven generations. Some of these people who come back from captivity and what they've been doing and how that's been passed on from one to another so that they're involved here. The, the role of the family to the Jewish people was crucial. Very, very important. Families played such an important role in the life of God's people that Israel believed they had a commitment to share God's word with their children. They had a commitment to... Uh, to be the working members of the household to make sure that it had a spiritual element. In our contemporary society, we live with people who, uh, they make the family vulnerable. They're exposing our families to, to increasing danger. You look at our, our divorce rate. You look at children who grow up from divorced families and how that affects them. And it's usually not positive. Nehemiah reflects a family structure which uh, provided the children with emotional structure, uh, material necessities, physical care, intellectual encouragement, moral values, spiritual teaching, because Israel's commitment to teaching the priority of family care was that important. And it's a rebuke to our contemporary society that takes divorce so casually that, that looks at abortion as being nothing, even though you're murdering children. That looks at the definition of family. Do you know in January, there's going to be a, a measure put before us to redefine the traditional family. Let's let the Bible do that. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you want to, John Keesling can give you some information about what's going on with that. The family's important, how we do this and how we handle it. We treat a lot of these things just way too lightly. Holy people in a holy city serving a holy God need to conduct themselves in the most holy way possible that we're set apart from the world and we're here to please God. Let me give you three thoughts and we'll close the lesson. Because it all comes down to this. What does this have to do with us? Number one, ask God for direction, not just provision. Don't ask God just to protect you. Ask God where he can put you, show you where he needs you. He's always been concerned about your place of residence and mine. He may be at this very moment trying to stir your heart from within to say, you need to be involved here. Maybe you need to be over here doing this. Listen to the voice of God. Listen for direction from his word. He puts us where he needs us. If we let him, it's not a matter of economic considerations. It's not a matter of promotion, all those other things. It's being somewhere because you know you can make a difference and help the church. Secondly, be involved in ministry, not just activity. It's easy to develop a sponge mentality. You know, a sponge mentality is you just soak it up, soak it up. You keep taking it all in and and nothing ever comes out. And God didn't call us to be sponges. And if you've been soaking it up for a long time, let me suggest this. Maybe it's time for you to get squeezed 
so that all the good that's in you can come out and benefit and bless others. It's not a matter of attending church functions. It's a matter of functioning in the church for the church. Do something. Be involved in ministry. Be where God needs you to be throughout this city, but especially within this church. I can remember several years ago, people said, oh, you came back to Albuquerque because you have family here. It's your hometown where you grew up. And I said, no. The only reason I came back to Albuquerque was to work with this church for the privilege of being able to do that. And thirdly, care most about your service, not about being noticed. The most obscure task is important if it's done in God's will. God doesn't look at applause meters. Hebrews 6 and verse 10 says, For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name, listen to this, in having ministered and in still ministering to his people. Do something. Find where God needs you to be. Get involved in some way in some ministry. Be a servant. And so what if nobody ever knows who you are and and nobody ever recognizes what you're doing? Just serve. God knows. And that's good enough. There's no problem with being a wallflower as long as somewhere along the line you eventually bloom for God. So we close with this. Ask God this week to help each one of us know where we should be in God's will and how he wants to use us. To help each one of us have a part in making the church stronger because we're here and not that the church will be weaker because we're here. Ask God to help each one of us be ministers of Jesus Christ for God's will. And the invitation is still the same. Any need that you might have spiritually, physically, emotionally, we're going to encourage you to let us know so we can help. We have elders who will be in room 104. You can come up to the front if you need to be immersed into Jesus to have your sins forgiven. If, if you need prayers for strength and encouragement, if you need somebody to help you see where you can serve and a ministry you can be involved in, all you have to do is come while we stand and while we sing.